we look to Thee, O God, that we would receive that blessing from Thee. We pray that Thou would undertake for us. We remember the Sunday school downstairs, blessed there, we pray. Remember those who are unwell today as well, and we pray Thy hand would be upon them. And Father, may we have a blessed day here in Thy house, worshiping Thee in spirit and in truth. Give us help, we pray, we ask, for the Savior's sake. Amen. Amen. I'm going to turn in the Word of God uh, this morning to First chapter 3, First Timothy chapter 3, and we're not moving early into First Timothy chapter 3. Uh, we'll be there this morning uh, for morning worship. Uh, but we'll move to the section at the end. And I think we've read this before, the example uh, that we have of a creed, what is believed. And there are many verses. I came across this yesterday. I can't remember whether I saw someone said it or said it to me. I can't remember. Uh, but when you think of John 3, uh, 16, and 1 Timothy 3.16 and 2 Timothy 3.16, and there are other chapters in Scripture, uh, chapter 3, verse 16, and those verses are well known, and it's certainly interesting uh, to look at the various verse 16s we have in Scripture, uh, chapter 3, verse 16, and we have one here, and it sets out who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And without controversy, 1 Timothy 3.16, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. And it is very similar to some of the early creeds of the church where it really states and sets out who Christ is, what Christ has done. And many of the historical aspects of the Savior's life as well. And then we'll turn to First Peter chapter three. First Peter chapter three. And we're one off. First Peter three verse fifteen. And not verse sixteen. But verse fifteen. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And as we come to that verse this morning, uh, you may be thinking you're glad that uh, we normally speak here without much interaction because we could stop and we could have a session of interaction, and I can ask the questions, and you can be ready uh, to give an answer uh, to those questions as we see here. Uh, but when we think of this verse, we are as the people of God uh, to be sanctified, uh, to have that relationship with the Lord, uh, to be walking with Him. That builds us up, that fills us with knowledge, that fills us uh, with that love, that faith toward Him, and it puts us in a position that we are ready always to give an answer to anyone who asks us 
a reason of the hope that is in us with meekness and fear. And so the Christian is to be ready to give an answer. We might not know all the answers, and certainly there are questions I could be asked today, and I don't know all the answers. I would have to go away and look and study, and I'm sure uh, there are many questions that you could not answer as well. Uh, We are not infinite. We don't know everything, but we should desire to grow in knowledge. And that knowledge should have a practical effect within our lives for our sanctification, but a practical effect in the sense that we can defend the truth and proclaim the truth. And when those come with questions asking us of Christ and salvation, why we believe, we can give an answer. We can explain God. And as we come to consider again creeds and confessions, we come to Consider this particular verse. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm to consider this particular verse. And it's of knowing the truth. And what do creeds and Christians do? Well, we saw last week they systematize biblical truth. They set out the truth of the gospel to us. They set out the truth of Scripture in a systematic way. What does sin teach? What does the, what does the Bible teach about sin? We should say, what does the Bible teach about sin? We can move through the Bible, but we can also go to the Westminster Catechism and consider the Catechism. And it systematically outlines what Scripture teaches about sin. And we looked at uh, various examples of that, the doctrine of Scripture as well. And so the notes cover last week, they cover this week. Creeds and confessions warmly express as well. It's not a dry, cold statement of doctrine, but something that should be heartwarming and meaningful to us. Uh, creeds and confessions encourage piety. The Ten Commandments are in the Westminster Catechisms. Uh, we have one example there in the notes, but we gave many examples last week of how they expound the commandments and teach us and instruct us in the way of God. And then we come uh, this morning to consider the creeds and confessions protect against error. Confessions protect against error. And we see that in regard to verse 15 of 1 Peter 3, would be And what do creeds and confessions do? They teach us, they instruct us, they systematize that truth, they affect our hearts because they bring that truth to our hearts. We're challenged about godliness, and we can then uh, protect ourselves against error using these things that are founded in the Word of God, using the Word of God itself, It is not a replacement for the Word, but rather it can help and teach us and instruct us in the ways of God and in the truths of the gospel. And so, if you were to to me, well, what's the purpose of man? What's man's main purpose here in this world? What should my purpose be? Well, the catechism gives us that. We can explain it. We can expound it. Man's chief end is to glorify God forever. Someone could come to you and say, well, no, the the Bible teaches, and this is what I believe. I believe that life is about enjoying myself, about doing what I want, about enjoying uh, the pleasures found in this world. Those pleasures may not be sinful. Those pleasures may be sinful, but life is all about enjoying what God has given me. And in a sense, we are to enjoy what God has given us, 
but we're to glorify God in it. And so many can think of themselves and look to themselves what they want to do without God. And the first question of the Westminster Catechism reminds us and protects us against that error. Our duty in life, man's chief end is not about us. It's to glorify God and to enjoy Him and to enjoy His blessings, but to glorify Him. And can we glorify Him by sinning? No, we glorify Him by keeping His law. We glorify Him by worshiping Him. We glorify Him by walking in His ways. And so we protect against error. John Fesco said that one of the greatest benefits of creeds and confessions, and we're on page, page two, is that they draw a line between orthodoxy and heterodoxy. Confessing the faith is not merely an exercise in repeating biblical statements. Meditating on and interpreting claims in harmony with divine revelation. Confessing the faith is not merely about repeating biblical statements. I could ask you some of the catechisms. But confessing the faith is not merely repeating those and knowing them word perfect. It is understanding what they mean. It is understanding and interpreting the biblical truths that lie behind them and also applying and living out those things practically. When we think of Galatians chapter 1, <coughs> the apostle is defending the true faith against those who teach another gospel. And the gospel was being distorted. We'll turn to Galatians chapter 1. The gospel was being distorted by some who were associated with the church. And the apostle was defending, and the church has a duty to uphold the true gospel. In Galatians chapter 1 and the verse 6, the apostle says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that into of Christ unto another gospel. It is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so I say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you that ye have received, let him be accursed. There is one gospel, Paul is saying, and there are those who come, they preach another gospel that is not another. It's a false gospel, and it is to be defended against. Elijah faced down the prophets of Baal. He did not want to coexist, and the plan of God was not for his people to coexist with those who worshipped in a false way, for those who loved the Lord to engage in this as well. There was to be a separation the church in Galicia was not to preach the truth of the gospel and mix it with this false gospel as well. There was truth and truth. Creeds and confessions set out that for us clearly. So they are beneficial in many ways. When we think of the New Testament church, the church is to be unified. Now, we don't mean... <coughs> an ecumenical unity coming together with churches that deny the faith. But the church is to be united. We can think of our denomination. We're made up of several churches. Those churches, in order to work together in a presbytery and to work together in a denomination, have to be united. There are some aspects of doctrine that we have an open position on, such as baptism. 
but in the fundamentals of the faith and how the gospel is to be preached and what the gospel consists of and the primacy of preaching and the great doctrines of Scripture, we are unified. A common confession of faith. You'll not leave here with the Westminster Standards and go up to Prince George and find that they've set that aside uh, for uh, some uh, light little summary that they've adopted as their confessional standards. Some summary that is just basic and not going into the great depths of truth. You'll find they hold to the same confession. You could we believe. And the church is to be unified. Paul spoke of glorifying God with one mind and one mouth and with one mind striving for the faith of the gospel, being united together. And there needs to be that clear standard of truth. If in a local church you had a pastor who believed in justification by faith alone, and then you had an associate pastor who believed that well, our good works can attribute to salvation. So when you come to the gospel service and you hear the gospel preached, there's a problem. One week you'll be told justification is by faith alone and Christ alone. And the next week, well, your good works help toward that. And the next week, maybe it's something else entirely. There needs to be a clear standard for the church. So as we uh, turn to Ephesians 4.14, we will see then that we are not to do this that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. Children, it can be easily deceived. I remember my brother was about three years of age, and I don't know, I think the postman came, he put the letter through the door. We were in the little porch area, we were kneeling down, and he comes running. And I'm like, shh, be quiet. You hear that? And he's like, hear what? Shh. I said, it's a dinosaur. He's coming to get us. Well, my brother started crying. I <laughs> really bad indeed. And uh, now, now, he's, now he's an adult, uh, but sometimes I still remind him of that. And he was easily deceived. He didn't realize uh, that uh, dinosaurs uh, aren't around. He didn't, even he didn't even believe they died millions of years ago, uh, as uh, the world and evolutionists tell us. He knew nothing about it. He thought, well, there's one local, it's coming, and now I'm scared. Children can be easily deceived. And when we look at that from a spiritual perspective, there are those who are children in faith, children in doctrine. They can be easily deceived. Something sounds good. Let's do it. It's like uh, the child goes to the toy shop. And there's all these great toys, and they want this one, and that one, or the other one. And then they take it home. It lasts about a day, and they're bored with it. They need something else. Children always need to be occupied, to be doing something. And I remember watching cartoons as a child, and there were certain episodes you saw time and time again. The first great. And by the time it was repeated five or six times, it was boring. You were absolutely bored. You knew what was going to happen. 
It wasn't entertaining anymore. But when we think of the truth of Scripture, we can be easily blown about. Somebody presents it a certain way. It looks good, but it's not. And Paul is saying here that we are not to be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. We may be influenced by the good doctrine. We may be influenced by the bad doctrine. But we're not to be carried here, there, and everywhere. We're to have a standard. And there's a standard truth that the word of or the church of Christ is to believe a clear standard. Because the church has constantly existed and false doctrines and philosophies have also existed and threatened the church. And there is a need then to be taught the essential truths of the word of God so that the church can contend for the faith once delivered unto the saints. So that we are not carried about by every wind of doctrine. That we are mature. We are mature. Not children, but mature in our faith. And there are different levels of maturity. We know that from interacting with some adults. Some adults are more mature than others. You can tell a silly joke to a particular adult, and they might not find it funny at all, and they will glare at you. And another adult will be rolling around the floor laughing at the silly joke that you told. There's different levels of maturity. There are different things that we do. There are actions and activities that some men think is below them. Matured beyond that. And so it is in the Christian life. There are Christians who are more mature than others, but we're all seeking to grow, all seeking to mature and to have this standard of faith. The apostle endeavored to preach the whole counsel of God, and he encouraged Timothy to hold fast the form of sound words, to hold fast the form of sound words. That second Timothy 1 verse 13 is the reference there in the notes. Hold fast the form of sound words. We're not to set that aside. We're not to set that aside. And so creeds and confessions are a significant aid in establishing a common confession of faith. And during the Reformation era, the creeds and confessions of Protestantism focused upon setting forth a Protestant standard of biblical truth. Those confessions took a strong stand against the errors of Romanism. The former John Knox was instrumental in the Scots Confession of 1560. Uh, That confession took a strong stand against Rome and for the sufficiencies of the Scriptures of truth. In other words, God's Word is sufficient. It's enough. It's all we need. We don't need the church to, as it were, have authority over the Word. The Word has authority over the church. And so that confession said in the authority of Scripture, as we believe and confess the Scriptures of God, sufficient to instruct and make perfect the man of God, so do we affirm and avow their authority to be from God and not to depend upon men or angels. We affirm, therefore, that those who say the Scriptures have no other authority save that which they have received from the kirk, the kirk being the Scottish term for church. So Presbyterianism, often uh, we would uh, refer to the kirk session, maybe not necessarily so much in North America, uh, but it would be referred to uh, sometimes in Ulster, certainly in Scotland, the kirk session. It's the church session. It's the elders of the church. 
which they have received from the kirk, the church, are blasphemous against God and injurious to the true church, kirk, which always hears and obeys the voice of her spouse and pastor, being the Savior, but takes not upon her to be mistress over the same. So the church listens to the master, listens to the Savior, listens to their great pastor, listens to his word, is guided by it, but does not elevate themselves to be over that very same word. And so the Scots Confession of 1560, what did it do? It sought to protect against error. It took the doctrine of Romanism in regard to the authority of Scripture, and it said, we're against this. This is wrong. And they sought to protect the church against that particular error. And there are other errors, of course, that they pointed out. But that was just one. And so creeds and confessions provide a public standard for the church and a public standard of discipline as well. A standard is provided to evaluate teaching and protect members from being excommunicated and shunned without any biblical steps of reconciliation simply because of personal differences or disagreements with the pastor. And of course, creeds and confessions are useful in witnessing to the truth of the Word of God to those outside the church. But there is a standard. And so if I preach something this morning that was outside of our standards and our standards opposed what was preached, well, there's a standard of doctrine that I have to be held to. And I'm accountable for what I say in light of that standard of doctrine. If I get up and I say that justification is by faith alone, well, there you go. It's in the confession of faith. It's in Scripture. If I get up and teach the opposite, well, the standard of the confession and ultimately the standard of Scripture says the pastor's made a mistake. And it may not just be a mistake. It might be full-blown heresy. It might not just be a little slip of the tongue. It might be heresy, and that needs to be looked at. And there's a standard then that is clearly set forth. And so creeds and confessions denote a Reformed church. The simplest way to recognize and understand what a Reformed church is is to read our historical creeds and confessions. A simple summary of doctrines believed doesn't do full justice to the breadth of the Reformed faith. It outlines some of those doctrines, but the confessions delve into what we believe and what we teach. And as a denomination... And as a denomination to protect against error, confessional documents are signed. The error of Arianism came into the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. Dr. Henry Cook, the 1800s, stood against it. And as a result of all those dealings, and it was a long, drawn-out battle, Henry Cook stood firm for the truth. And it did not take a few months or a few years. It took decades for the church to finally take a stand and to listen to this man who had been pointing this out for years and to listen to the truth and to deal with those who were promoting the doctrines of Arianism. And one of the ways in which it came about that these men and churches left that denomination and, of course, going back to before 1951, that's really where we came from. One of the means that they used was signing the Confession of Faith as a statement of doctrine. This is what we believe. And, of course, if you believe the doctrines of Arianism, you can't sign the Westminster Confession of Faith as a statement of what you believe 
and what you promise to uphold and teach as it is seen in the word of God. There's a safeguard. Men reject the idea of a confession, uh, but it is a safeguard against error. Men change and twist the word of God. They ignore parts of scripture for their own agendas, but a confession of faith is a safeguard. But ultimately, it is the Lord who protects from error. And as we consider standing for truth and holding the truth, uh, we can uh, think of the church at Ephesus. They lost their first love. And we can stand for truth and lose our first love. Our relationship with the Lord is paramount. And seeking his help and the help of his spirit to stand for truth and to preach that truth. And so creeds and confessions protect against error. But, and we see that in the early church. We'll come to that in a moment. But creeds and confessions are tools for teaching truth. They're tools for teaching truth. This is something that is clear from what we said already. We can think of those words in Peter about being ready always to give an answer. And creeds, confessions, catechisms help us give an answer. Help us give an answer. And so the Bible is our curriculum. It's the content of our preaching and what we teach, what we prophecy concerning the Word of God. And Scripture teaches the Importance of children being taught the Word of God. And that ought to be the uh, priority of every Christian parent, to give their children a strong foundation in the Word of God. We see that in 2 Timothy 3.15. Timothy was taught the Scriptures from a young age that are able to make him wise unto salvation, give him the knowledge, point him to Christ. He needed to be saved and experience that work of regeneration, but the scriptures made him wise to that need. And creeds and catechisms are valuable tools that we can communicate the truth of God's word to our children. These documents provide clear, concise definitions of basic doctrines and key words, and they can be easily memorized. So children can hide them in their hearts. There are proof texts that anchor these definitions in scripture. Catechisms not only teach basic doctrine, but they also show us how to live according to God's law and how to pray. We can think the Ten Commandments in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and then it moves on to the Lord's Prayer. And so when we catechize children, they learn the basic truths of Christianity and faith and living, and we reinforce and deepen our own knowledge of them. And that is important as well, because there are many adults who study the catechism. There are many adults who try to memorize the catechism. There are many adults who, at the very, very least, might read a commentary dealing with the catechism to help understand it more. It's not just a tool for children. You may think that, well, because you haven't been in Sunday school for 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, catechisms aren't for you. Catechisms are for the young people. They're for the children. They're not for you. But we can learn from them. That's why we quote them often in preaching. We can learn from how they set out the truth of God. It teaches us, instructs us, brings us closer to the Lord. And so, catechizing was often used. Asking questions and answering questions. And that form remains in use today. The answer is not merely to be memorized but taught. And that highlights a clear problem that we find in many Reformed churches today. The catechism is asked in Sunday school, 
What is man's chief end? And the child says, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Well done. You know, here's a thumbs up, a well done, a congratulations, a little star, a sticker on your little book or a candy or whatever it might be, a prize at the end of the year. The child knows it perfectly. My own church, my home church, they ask you all 107 questions at once, and it's an examination. You, can't, you don't have to do it. It's a voluntary thing, but if you're asked all 107 questions, you get a certificate. You get your name up in gold on a board at church for those who've memorized the shorter catechism. It's a nice thing to do, and a child may memorize it. They may know it perfectly. But have they been successfully catechized? Memorization does not equal the understanding of truth. And this is the problem that we can see in many Reformed churches today. There's the memorization, but there's not the understanding. The doctrine must be taught, explained, and applied. You must understand what you're taught. My brother struggle learning the shorter catechism. He ended up learning it for college. He signed it as a confession of his faith now that he's a licentiate of the Ulster Presbytery. But when he was a child, he struggled to learn the catechism. It's not because uh, he uh, struggled in regard to memorization and academic work, but he struggled to memorize it because he thought, what's the point? I don't know what it means. It'd be like me telling you, here's a page of paper. There's something on it. There's several paragraphs. It's written in an obscure language. I want you to memorize it. Don't worry about what it means. Just memorize it. You're going to struggle because what's the purpose here? Is it just to test your mind? You don't know what you're learning. You don't understand it. And he struggled with that for a very short time. And then he began to realize what the catechisms mean. Memorization does not equal the understanding of truth. The doctrine must be taught, explained, and applied. And that can be in the Sunday school class. Certainly the Puritans placed a big emphasis upon teaching children by catechisms. And parents were instructed this, this is one of their duties toward children to catechize them to ask the questions not merely to leave it to the Sunday school teacher because in those days the Sunday school teacher did not exist but it was the families that did this the families that did this and the Puritans placed this big emphasis as one of the duties toward children several Puritan pastors wrote catechisms for their own congregations and for their men to use and the Westminster Catechisms came from this Puritan era as well. One commentator said that today we have largely delegated this responsibility to the church, to the Sunday school. In doing so, we must take care not to abdicate our personal mandate as parents. Even if the church does not catechize, does catechize our children, we should incorporate such teaching into family worship, if for no other reason than to support what our church teachers are doing as they work with our children. So it should be this com complementing the Sunday school should complement the home and should complement the preaching ministry in the church. And the home should complement the Sunday school. It's a working together. 
for the good of the children. It's not a reason for any aspect within the church to not teach or not look at the catechisms or not fulfill their responsibility to children because somebody else is doing that. It's a shared responsibility. Shared responsibility. And of course, learning and teaching catechisms helps the individual to move through the wide spectrum of Christian doctrine and is certainly beneficial both for children and adults. And so, sitting down this afternoon with the catechism before you, looking at one question, looking at the scripture references, understanding what it means, praying to the Lord to help you to understand it. If it's one of the commandments, looking at that and thinking, where have I gone wrong? What can I fix? Examine yourself. Seek the Lord. Read a good commentary. Read some of the Puritan catechisms. Read some of the Puritan commentaries on the Shorter Catechism. Thomas Watson's Body of Divinity is a three-volume set. It's available in the PDF. I was trying to find mine the other day, and I couldn't find it. I wasn't sure if it was at home, if a cat had knocked it off the table. Uh, if it was in the office, it was in the office. I'm not going to find it right now. And so I was able to go on the Internet, type in Thomas Watson's Body of Divinity PDF. Up it comes, all the information I was looking for, right there, right there. Free of charge, free of charge. And I looked at how much it would cost to get it for Lugos, and, well, it's free online, and I have a copy somewhere, uh, so it's free online, it's accessible. And there's a three-volume set, The Body of Divinity, deals with a lot of the theological questions in the Shorter Catechism. Moving on, there's the Ten Commandments, and dealing with some of the questions we mentioned last week of how to live and dealing with sin. And moving on, there's the Lord's Prayer and Communion and the Sacraments. And there are three volumes. And so there's the body of divinity, the catech, or the commandments, and uh, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, but they go a little outside those. The Lord's Prayer deals with several matters as well. And Thomas Watson is simple. Thomas Watson is one of the easiest to read Puritans. And Thomas Watson is very practical as well. You're not going to read that and think, this is just dry doctrine. How can I apply this to my life? He doesn't teach me that. Well, he does. He applies it to our hearts, and there are practical uses, and he takes that theology and he applies it very simply, something that's free, a tool that we can use free of charge to learn and meditate upon and consider the great truths of Scripture. So creeds and confessions are tools for teaching truth. But we move then to historic creeds and confessions, and I want to give just a summary of some creeds and confessions, um, maybe a little more historical now, coming to consider some of these, and we will have to move into this uh, next week as well. Uh, but there are many creeds and confessions within the Christian church, and it's interesting to note that there are many confessional documents from the early church. That's important because the early church set forth that systematized presentation of doctrine and set forth what the church believed and fought many heresies. Again, the Reformation, there were many uh, confessional documents that came from the Reformation era. And why was that? Because of the battle with Roman Catholicism and setting out the truth of Scripture. And, of course, then there is the Second Reformation era or the Puritan period in England. 
Uh, there's a term for it in Dutch, and I vaguely remember it off the top of my head. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, uh, but it translates to something like the Second Reformation. And that's the equivalent period in Holland as they had in England that we call the Puritan period, the end of the 1500s to the early 1700s. And so the Dutch term actually implies it's a second reformation. The Puritan period implies that uh, there were those who sought to purify the church, to keep reforming the church. And there are confessional documents that came from that. There are confessional documents for Catholicism, confessional documents for Protestantism, and then we break down the branches, the Anglicanism, Episcopalianism, the Church of England, for example, the Episcopal Church. You have the Presbyterian confessions. You have Reformed confessions. You have confessions that are held to by the Dutch Reformed churches. You have confessions held by Congregational churches and Baptist churches and Pentecostal churches. And so uh, there is a wide variety of creeds and confessions. We're going to consider some of the main ones and probably stop around the end of the 1600s because the majority of Reformed churches today, their creeds and confessions predate 1700. And so we have the Apostles' Creed, dated around 120 to 250 AD. Some would say it's a little later. Uh, This creed was not written by the Apostles, but it is the culmination of several centuries of Christian doctrine. The early church used the creed to identify believers, to instruct new converts, and to provide a unifying confession of faith for worship and liturgy. Uh, There are some uh, churches uh, today, uh, Dutch Reformed churches and others as well, who uh, would come to the worship service, and part of their liturgy is to recite the Apostles' Creed. And it says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From hence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe a holy Catholic church, meaning universal, is not a reference there to the Roman Catholic Church. And I think in another one of these documents, Uh, We will see the word Catholic used as well, meaning universal, uh, not Roman Catholic. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. We have the Apostles' Creed in one of our hymn books uh, for the state school we were in in Northern Ireland. And I remember looking at it, and uh, my friend's copy, they had scribbled out Holy Catholic and changed it to Holy Protestant. And... I mean, it's the same meaning, it's the universal church, uh, but they didn't like that term Catholic, and so they changed it to Protestant. Uh, But that is the Apostles' Creed. It's known today, it's recited today, it very simply expresses what we believe. And then we have the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed is dated 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea. It was amended in 381. This is where we're coming to shortly, uh, dealing with Arianism, and now this creed regards the Lord Jesus Christ as the divinely begotten Son of God the Father. And this truth was disputed by the teachings of Arianism. And this specific heresy was the cause for the Council of Nicaea. It's a creed that sets forth the 
biblical truth of Christ's divinity in opposition to the heresy of the age. And that sets the pattern for creeds to protect the truth and to proclaim the truth. We see that with the Synod of Dort as well. There was the Remonstrance, the, Ar uh, the Arminian Remonstrance, and the Synod of Dort met. What did they do? They protected the truth, they proclaimed the truth, and we have the Canons of Dort that set out the doctrines of grace. And so the Nicene Creed is there. It's also in the Church Bulletin today. I thought I would put it in. And for the sake of time, we won't read it. Uh, but it is similar in some ways to the Apostles' Creed. And it deals with the importance of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, his divinity. I think we should read uh, that second line down, uh, the last two lines of page 3. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, is the eternity of Christ, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. And so we have the Nicene Creed defending, defending who Christ is and the person of Christ. And so we have in the Chalcedonian Creed, 451, and then we have the Athanasian Creed in 500, uh, the Athanasian Creed is not there in its entirety. It was quite long. And uh, so I cut a little out. Uh, but it gives you an idea, again, that was defending the truth of God, the truth of the Savior, against the heresies of Arianism. Uh, we'll pause there. We'll maybe come back to these two just briefly next week uh, and consider them then. Uh, but the time is moving on. And so uh, we'll seek the Lord in prayer and we'll close. Eternal God and our Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy word today. We thank thee for the importance of creeds and how creeds have been used to protect from error. And Father, we realize our ultimate authority is the word of God, that revelation that thou hast given. But we thank thee for this systematizing of truth, for creeds that simply state what we believe. And we pray that, Father, we would have that desire to know more, to learn, to use these things as tools for protecting us from error and for teaching the truth of the gospel of Christ. Father, we look to thee for thy blessing today. We pray that we would know thy grace, we would know thy favor, we would know thy help upon us. And as we worship, may we glorify thee in spirit and in truth. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.